Revelation 17. We are getting close to the end of Revelation. And uh, uh, I'm excited about what is yet to come. Revelation 17 and 18, which we're only going to look at, we're going to look at part of 17 this morning. We're not going to look at the whole chapter. But Revelation 17 and 18 are are really an expansion um, or a deeper dive look at the event spoken of in chapter 16 and verse 19, um, where in the vision John sees, he says, the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. So 17 and 18 are gonna expand on that statement and give us more insight to what God did and why he did it. Uh, Basically chapter 17 is, um, if you were in a courtroom, it would be the presentation of the evidence as to why Babylon needed to be judged and uh, then her demise. And then chapter 18 is how the world reacts to uh, the destruction of Babylon. So when you think about it, you got all these visions going on. By the way, I was thinking this morning, last week I said, it's like ping pong balling around Revelation with all the different visions. Um, How many of you watch NFL football? Am I the only one that does? A few of you do. Good job, David. Uh, there's a, there is a, uh, a streaming channel or a show called NFL Red Zone. Anybody here watch that? It drives my family crazy. But it, it, the guy, anytime anybody gets, a team gets into scoring position, they bring up that game on the screen. And so the whole show is jumping from game to game to game to game, whoever's in scoring position. And sometimes they'll have four boxes up where you can watch four games at once and the guy's talking about all four games. And I thought this morning that Revelation is a lot like NFL Red Zone because it's just constantly going from this image to this image to this vision to this vision. Sometimes they're side by side and they're not in any particular order necessarily. They're just, they're just coming up. And, um, and so when you think about all the visions we've seen and how they are moving around and this vision starts here and then some other visions will come in and then it'll return to this vision and other visions will come in and it'll return back to that vision. Uh, it, it, it's just scattered in a lot of ways. But when we come to 17 and 18, it's very focused. It's one long vision basically of her judgment and then the reaction to it. And I think that's kind of unique, which makes us, should make us sit back and say, this is really important material for us to understand. And secondly, it's two full chapters devoted to one topic, basically, which is unusual in Revelation. That's a lot of turf that is being covered and gets into a lot of detail. So 17 and 18 are very important in Revelation for us to understand Uh, partly the fury of God against sin and to understand how sin permeates and there's a world order that is not the Illuminati, but there's a world order 
that a world system, a world uh, philosophy that exists throughout, since the fall, it's existed. And uh, God wants us to understand how horrid it is and how much he hates it and the judgment that comes upon it. So, so 17 and 18, think of it in that way as an expansion of chapter 16 and for us to see uh, how much God hates sin. So chapter 17, again, informs us as to the identity of Babylon, which we're gonna talk about, the reasons Babylon is judged, punished, and another day we'll look at, today we're gonna look at like the first half of 17, next time uh, after Thanksgiving we'll look at the second part of 17, and then uh, sometime in the new year we'll get into chapter 18. I'd like to read chapter 17 out loud, and I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I begin in verse 1 and read the entire chapter. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. I interrupt myself there to say, isn't it amazing how he's revealing the mystery and you're getting more confused as he's revealing the mystery? That's kind of the way I felt with this. Verse 11. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And the 10 horns that you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. And they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the 10 horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. 
They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. I've been teaching the Bible now full time for uh, 21, 16, 37 years, and then taught Sunday school classes for another five or six years. And I say that to say that one of the great benefits of being a teacher of the Bible is that over time, because that's, you're immersed in it and, and you're spending more time in the Bible than a lot of other people do just because of what you do for a job, you begin to develop what I call a holistic view of Scripture. You begin to see how it all fits together. I think for a lot of Christians, they, they and I'm not being critical with this, but they know passages, they know verses, and those verses come back to mind. Um, but they, they don't often see how those verses fit into the big picture. And they don't see the connections um, that exist in Scripture. What I've seen, and, and it's kind of like, now I'm 62, and it's just like, I don't have a lot of time left, and, and I'm just trying to kind of starting to feel like I see the bigger picture more than I used to. But what I've begun to see over the last probably 10 years is that there are themes and streams of thought that are established in Genesis and they begin to connect with each other as you move through scripture and they flow into a beautiful ocean of who God is and what he is doing and what he has done. There's a term that gets used in, in academic circles called the meta-narrative of scripture. And we talked about it in the adult uh, time one, one week. Uh, meta-narrative is simply a, a big word for the big picture of scripture. So there's this discussion about what is the big picture of scripture? What is scripture all about when you look at the whole of it? And, and it really falls down, it comes down to uh, four things. The creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. Those are the big four themes that come together to, to form the big picture of Scripture. So as you read Scripture, and hopefully I'm not boring you with this little sideways thing here, but as you read scripture, if you're aware of those things, you'll begin to see over and over again, comments about the scripture, about the creation or allusions to the creation. You'll see comments about the fall and allusions to the fall as you go through scripture. And, and it often shows up in every book of the Bible. Then there'll be comments or statements um, about redemption, either coming or having been accomplished. And then, uh, hints at the 
restoration or recreation that's coming. And in early scripture, you see uh, just little shady hints or shadows of hints. And by the time you get into the New Testament, it's, it's, it's being revealed. But there's, there's these themes that constantly come through in scripture. And as we approach our Bibles, we can see that Genesis tells us how it all began and Revelation tells us how it will all be restored. So, so this is where it was and it was all good. And then the fall came and redemption came in answer to the fall. And then there will be a new heaven and a new earth that is a restoration and a recreation and actually better than what was original. So there's, this, there's these themes that are just constantly running through scripture. Genesis introduces us to sin and Revelation shows us the eradication of sin. And in between those two, there's lamenting over the fall and sin. We, we lament the effects of sin as we read scripture but we also celebrate the one who has conquered sin. So that's kind of a big picture. And I, I say that because as we read that, we also begin to see another thing. And that is that as the story develops in the scriptures, we begin to see two kingdoms develop or two domains develop. They're first identified in Genesis 6 as the sons of God and the daughters of men. There's these two groups of people. There's the sons of God, which is Seth's line. And there are the uh, daughters of men, which refers to uh, Cain's line and, and unbelievers versus those who believe. As the stories move forward, two cities are attached to each kingdom. As we move forward into scripture, two cities are attached to each kingdom. The, the one kingdom of the sons of God, the, the city that's attached to it is Jerusalem. And it's, an, it's gonna be very significant when we get to the recreation, the new heaven and the new earth, that the city that comes down from heaven is the new Jerusalem. But Jerusalem becomes the capital city of the one kingdom and Babylon becomes the capital city of the other kingdom. So it's important that Babylon gets destroyed as well here in Revelation. These cities become the symbolic centers of each kingdom and from where the thrones of two great rulers are, city, are seated. Babylon becomes synonymous with the kingdom of darkness where Satan sits on his throne. And Jerusalem becomes synonymous with the kingdom of light from which Jesus, the king of kings, rules. So those, those themes are developing and moving forward and coalescing and becoming more clear as you move through scripture. As I mentioned later on in Revelation, we're gonna be introduced to a new Jerusalem but there will not be a new Babylon because Babylon is destroyed. This is the overthrowing of the kingdom of darkness here in chapter 17. And we will see the end of Babylon here 
which was once a great city and a powerful movement, but she will be destroyed and her followers will be destroyed. In this vision, John sees Babylon as a person, a woman, and a prostitute. But it's important for us to understand that John is not speaking of a literal person or a specific location. So when he talks about Babylon, he's not talking about a city in Iraq today. He's talking about a place that is connected to a worldview, that's connected to a movement, that is connected to human opposition to God and the promotion of sin and alliance with evil. So when you hear Babylon, it's, it's imaged as a person, it's imaged as a place, it's in, imaged as a movement, but it's, it's really um, a, a symbolic uh, reference. I think it's helpful to us to understand this, to visit some stories from the Old Testament. And I wanted to go into more time with this, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm just going to touch on each one. But as we go back in Scripture, there's the story, remember, uh, if you may, you may remember, there's a story of the Tower of Babel, if you're familiar with that. If you're not, it's in Genesis, and I encourage you to go back and read that. But the Tower of Babel was a story where humanity sought to proclaim themselves as equal to and independent of God. They were gonna build a tower that reached up to heaven. And the thinking behind that was they would all as human beings coalesce in this location and live together in this location, which was in direct disobedience to God's command to human beings to go out across the earth and make the earth a place where God is worshiped from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun. They were in opposition to that and wanted to create a massive place to live and build a tower that would reach to the heavens and in doing so proclaim themselves as equal with God and not in need of God. It's the same idea that Satan came to Eve with in the garden when he said to her, God doesn't want you to eat that fruit because you'll know what he knows. You will be like him. And inside of themselves, Adam and Eve said, that would be a good thing. And they ate the fruit. The Tower of Babel was another attempt at throwing off God and uh, promoting the human race. Later, Babel, which is also called Babylon, it's the same word. When you read Babylon in the Old Testament or, uh, or Babel in the Old Testament, it's the same word. Babylon is the city of Babel. It's both, later in scripture, it becomes both a great city and a world empire. It had a king who was very wicked named King Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember him from the stories of Daniel. And by that point, Babylon was the world power. And they were brutal, 
and immoral. Remember the story of, uh, of the, uh, the king under, under Daniel, but the handwriting on the wall, they were having a massive debauched party. They were a, an incredibly sinful group. Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember, declares himself greater than any god and he threatens the death penalty to anyone who disagrees. He builds a massive statue of himself and it requires everyone to bow down to it under penalty of death. His empire is filled with corruption, debauchery, and idolatry, and Babylon becomes the city and this empire that is really just a cesspool of sin and false religion. And wherever the king's armies conquer, that sin and false religion spreads like a disease. So the reference to Babylon in Revelation is hearkening back to the history of Babylon and what it's been about. Far later in in the history of humanity, Another empire rises to power and becomes representative of the center of evil in the world. It's not Babylon proper. It's a a city named Rome. Rome was founded and ruled by men whose hearts were as wicked and corrupt as Nebuchadnezzar. And once again, there became a cult of worship around the emperor, just like with Nebuchadnezzar. So in Rome, the emperor is exalted as God above all other gods and his worship was demanded. By the time of the writing of Revelation with John, the guy who is the emperor in power is heavily persecuting Christians because they would not worship him as God. Interestingly, by the middle of the first century, the the early church referred to Rome as Babylon. If you read one of Peter's letters, he says, those from Babylon greet you. And he's speaking of Rome. The name Babylon has been established as a symbol of human opposition to God and to the spread of evil as a great world power or a conglomeration of world powers. And then here in chapter 17, as I said earlier, the visions that are given to John are a record of her guilt and reason for judgment. It's presented like evidence to us so that when we see what God does to Babylon, we sit back and we say, it's deserved. He is just. In verses four and five, you'll see that Babylon is referred to as the mother of abominations and that she holds a cup of abominations in her hand. It's a gold cup. We're gonna talk next time about um, her self-indulgence in relation to luxuries. But she's the mother of abominations and that um, would infer that she not only is involved in abominations herself, but that she reproduces it in other people.
We're not familiar with the word abomination. We don't use it much today. Anybody used abomination last week? Uh, Last month, last year? It's not a word we use a lot. But it's a word that's found in the Old Testament repeatedly, and it is a religious word. It is commonly connected to false religions and idolatry. So when she's holding a cup of abomination and she is the mother of abomination, what, this, what John is wanting to communicate to us is that, uh, the angel to John, to us, is that this woman, this system, this world influence and world view is about worshiping anything but the one true God. And as you look up the word abomination in the, in the Hebrew or the Greek, the idea of it is something that is very foul-smelling and repulsive. So that it doesn't just look disgusting, it smells disgusting. I was trying to think of something that would, would illustrate that well, and there's, the thing that came to my mind was a fruit that grows in, in Asia area called durian. Has anybody here ever been exposed to durian? So Jason has. Um, you don't want to be exposed to durian. It's a, it's, a, it's a weird little fruit. I was in Singapore, and Singapore is a very clean city, and we were walking through the streets, and we were coming around a corner, and all of a sudden, this scent of something decayed and rotten was in the air. And Singapore is just so clean. So to be smelling that all of a sudden was just disgusting. And I, I said to the guy who was with me, I said, what is that smell? Do they have dumpsters over there or something? And he said, no, that's durian. That's a fruit they eat. And they think it's delightful and wonderful. They were trying to get me to eat it. And I have a rule that if it smells bad, don't eat it. I just kind of was the way it was. But they love it. They have rules in Singapore that you cannot bring durian on the train system or in an elevator because it smells so bad. It smells like something died. If you've ever been driving down the road or walking in the woods and there's a dead animal that's rotting and that smell that comes from it, that's what durian kind of smells like. It's just nasty. And and that's the idea behind, behind abominations is that it's the smell of death. It's just repulsive. Her actions, in God's eyes, are so repulsive, it's like the smell of death to God. And as she turns people away from the worship of God to the worship of idols, God's wrath is incited. I was thinking of of this, and I thought of Queen Jezebel, who we talked about before, in the Old Testament, who entices people away from the, from the worship of God and sets up idols in front of the temple and ultimately idols are in the temple. And by doing so, she ensures their spiritual death, the people. As the mother of abominations, she is the source of false worship. Her cup of abomination tells us what she craves and where she finds satisfaction. To her, it tastes good. To God, 
It's disgusting. A second accusation against her is what's in the cup she holds. It not only holds abominations, but it tells us that it contains the impurities of her sexual immorality. Her identity is found in her sexual exploits and self-indulgence. I mean, I could kind of stop right there and say, have you seen the influence of Babylon anywhere in our society, in our world today? False worship and identity in sexual uh, preferences and orientations. Her moral corruption is exposed as she is called a prostitute and the mother of prostitutes. She's not only the mother of abomination of false worship, she is the mother of all sexual perversion. In verse 2, we're told that her influence permeates every level of society, kings and dwellers of the earth. The kings have been seduced by her, and the dwellers of earth have been seduced by her. Kings like King David use their power to fulfill their lust, and the common people exploit one another through transactional relationships. We have reached a point in our society that sex is something that you trade for something else, and that's accepted and okay. I've seen women who literally are prostituting themselves to a man simply to have a place to live. They're trading a house to live in for their body. They're trading a meal at a restaurant for their body. It isn't just that these relationships have become shallow, these relationships have become transactional. That's what we call prostitution. We hear the philosophy of Babylon and her lovers in the saying, if it feels good, do it. How one feels determines what is right. And when the feels are gone, we simply move on. But the gospel tells us something different about who we are and how God sees us. And as we read of Babylon and we see her destruction, where Revelation is going to move to in chapter 19 is to a wedding feast and the bride of Christ. In chapter 21, when the new Jerusalem comes down, she is called the bride of Christ. And what is being set up here at the end that's been hinted at all the way through Revelation is that you have Babylon the harlot and her followers standing in contrast to the bride of Christ. Babylon is known for her infidelity, the bride of Christ for her faithfulness. Babylon celebrates her impurity, while Christ's bride celebrates the purity given to her. 
Babylon lives for self-gratification while the bride of Christ lives to please Jesus. I think if we've never had a time in our history where we understand who Babylon is and what she's about, we live in the perfect time to see Babylon front and center. Again, I heard a preacher in town here who said the United States is Babylon. Yeah, it is. And so is just about every other country in the world today. We live in a time in the world, except for pockets in the Southern Hemisphere where the gospel is actually exploding right now and people are coming to know Christ. But we live in a time where who you are is defined by sex. We live in a time where power is openly flaunted and abused and it's considered good. We live in a time where our political leaders, because of their power, when accused of sexual immorality, just write it off as that's the way guys are. And because we're so in love with one or another, well, we excuse it. Right? It's okay. Because that guy's just as bad as that guy. So let's just say that's okay. And it's okay because one or the other is going to give us what we want. Money, freedom to sin. And so we look at both sides of the political spectrum and say, we're not looking for a pastor. We're looking for a fill-in-the-blank position. And it's okay. It all just gets swept under the rug. Because we have bought into Babylon and her philosophy. We have idols. We have political parties that are our identity now. Because if we can get our person in, then we have power. And so Christians align themselves with a person and non-Christians align themselves with a person and see their hopes and dreams fulfilled for what they really want, which are idols.
and Christians buy into it. We're in a bad place as Christians when the world begins to point fingers at us and say, how can you as Christians support that? And I'm not attacking any one particular person in those political offices. I'm attacking a whole lot of them. And I'm speaking to us as Christians saying, why are we buying into this? That's Babylon. Well, we want to see America become a place where God is worshiped. Well, I, I haven't quite found anything in the Bible who, that says that's going to be accomplished through human political parties and the passing of laws. It's going to happen through the advance of the gospel. No, America is not going to become a Christian nation because we pass laws that force people to act like Christians. America is going to become a Christian nation if Christians spread the gospel and people believe. It requires the power of the Holy Spirit in place as well. I just wish Christians would put as much energy into the advance of the gospel as they do political aspirations. And as I've said before, we as Christians get pretty worked up about the LGBTQ movement. I had a visitor here a couple weeks ago. I, I got my button. Kids, we don't have class today, but I wore my button today. I remembered last week, I forgot. But we had a visitor a couple weeks ago. And uh, uh, I think he came to the conclusion I was woke. So I, I told him I didn't like that label being put on things. But before he left, he looked at my button. He said, what, what's that button all about? And I said, um, heard of a guy named Noah? And he just kind of looked at me and I said, in our Sunday school class, the theme is God keeps his promises. That's what we're talking about this year. And the rainbow? Oh. I think it's interesting that we as Christians, we talk about how the one side has, has appropriated the rainbow for their cause. And yet we as Christians, I think to a certain degree, have forgotten ourselves what the rainbow is all about because every time we see one, we think LGBTQ instead of God keeps his promises. We've actually misappropriated it as well. But as I've said, and I'll probably keep saying it, we're fighting hard against that stuff as Christians. We're getting all worked up about transgender and the school policies and all that stuff. But, you know, if a couple loves each other and they live together, it's not that big of a deal. 
We are buying into the siren song of Babylon in our idolatry and our view of sexual identity. I don't live my life thinking I'm straight. It's not my identity. Straight just happens to go along with what God wants. But I don't go around putting bumper stickers on my car about how I'm straight or posting on Facebook about how I'm straight because that's not my primary identity. I'm just going to say that I think we've gotten ourselves pretty messed up in how we're thinking because of our responses to what we're seeing instead of coming back to the gospel and understanding who we are in Jesus and what he calls us to do and who he calls us to be and to walk in obedience to him, to keep in step with the Spirit. and to be people who live and proclaim the gospel. There's more evidence here for her guilt. There's more things for us to maybe feel bad about. But for today, we're gonna stop there and come back to this later. But for now, for this morning, I want to ask you to consider the direction of your life and the choices that you make and how you think about your world. And I think some of what I'm trying to drive at this morning is that it's very easy for us to learn about the corruption of Babylon and to see that corruption expressed in our society and immediately begin to think of those people understand what I'm saying with that? Those people. It's easy to identify the sinful excesses of the immoral and idolaters and then excuse ourselves of similar behavior, just not as bad. I've said this phrase many, many times. I haven't said it as much of late, but I just am getting back to it. God is not as interested in your perfections as he is your direction. And too often, we are pointing fingers at those people and justifying ourselves because of our perceived perfections and actually end up creating a list of rules to keep that are developed by less about the gospel and what Christ calls us to be and more about the opposite of what we're seeing in our society. Follow what I'm saying? And we create that list of rules and then we proclaim ourselves as not one of those and we end up living very legalistically and apart from a gospel mindset. We become the Pharisee who says, I am thankful 
that I am not like other men, even this publican. We find the worst of the culture and justify ourselves by comparing ourselves to the worst of the culture. And the gospel calls us and Christ calls us to be like him. The standard is not the worst of the culture when it comes to evaluating how good of a Christian we are. But the standard is Christ. Legalism finds somebody lower to compare yourself to. Gospel thinking looks at Jesus and says, how much am I like him? How much am I like him? And I would also say that sometimes we confuse the stopping of sin with the pursuit of Christ-likeness. We talked about repentance last week. Repentance is not just saying, I'm not going to do this sin anymore. Repentance is turning from that sin and pursuing Christ, Christ-likeness. Stopping of sin is not the same as repentance. The Bible makes it clear that there is to be spiritual movement towards growth in the image of Christ. We're told to walk worthy of our calling. We are told to keep in step with the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. We are called to internal change, not just abstinence from sin. If there's not an internal change, there's not a true abstinence. You're just lowering the bar so that you can meet it. And I would even suggest that we are kidding ourselves as to our personal tendency to sin if we're not pursuing Christ-likeness. I want to encourage you this morning. As the good news of the gospel proclaims us to be saints and calls us to live as saints, that you'd ask God through the power of the Holy Spirit and through his word that we have here to help you understand where change needs to take place to help you understand where you have become idolatrous or immoral. And to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to change. And to have a heart to make a choice to love and live for Jesus. You have been redeemed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Stay in the kingdom of light and don't go messing around exploring in the kingdom of darkness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would use your word to pierce us like a sword. Help us to understand where we worship idols. 
help us to understand where immorality is in our lives. Help us to find our identity in the story of the gospel, what Christ has done for us to make us righteous, to give us a new heart, to open our eyes to see spiritual things, to open our ears to hear and understand spiritual things, and help us to walk in the light. Help us to be transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is our good and acceptable form of worship. And I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.